Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on the Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. Hi, I'm Lee Strobel. So great to be with you, Venture Church, Venture Online. Uh, grateful to Tim Lundy for setting this up. I wish I could be out there at your church building with you, but uh, given the fact that we're in the midst of a pandemic, I'm hunkered down here in Houston, Texas. I used to live out in California. We moved out here to be close to my uh, two oldest grandchildren. So uh, when I moved to Texas, uh, I didn't know anything about Texas. I'm a Chicago kid originally. So uh, I bought a book. And the book's called How to Talk Texan. Because I didn't know. What, what did I know? So I learned how to talk Texan. First thing I learned is the difference between y'all and all y'all. Which, when you think about it, makes sense. All y'all's plural, right? It makes sense. But uh, the thing I learned about talking Texan that I like the most is that in Texas, if you want to say thank you to someone, you can say thank you. Or you can say, appreciate you. Isn't that nice? appreciate you. That's what I want to say to you. Appreciate you. I appreciate all y'all is what I want to say. Appreciate you uh, being here today to watch this uh, telecast. Uh, appreciate you uh, taking the time to explore spiritual matters the way you're doing. I just appreciate you. And I, I thought, you know, what's the, what could I do that might be helpful? And, you know, as Tim suggested, why, why don't I just tell you a story? Um, some of you have seen my story in the motion picture, The Case for Christ, and that's fairly accurate. You know how made for, uh, um, you know, stories adapted to the screen are. They're not totally accurate. It's about 80% accurate, but I'm going to give you the real story of my spiritual journey. Uh, and it is a story that begins in atheism, because I decided at a rather young age that God cannot and does not exist. Now, I just thought, you know, the mere concept of an all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing uh, creator of the universe, come on, it's crazy, wasn't even worth my time to check out. Now, I, I tend to be a skeptical person. My, my background's in journalism and law, and I was a legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. And we used to have a, a, a sign in our newsroom that said, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. How do you know she's telling the truth? Got any evidence? Got anything to back that up? Uh, so we were proud that, you know, we wouldn't accept anybody's word at face value. We always tried to get at least two sources to confirm a fact before we print it in the newspaper. And that's good. That's uh, for, you know, you want journalists to be skeptical, right? My problem was that my skepticism bubbled over into cynicism and it cemented me into my atheism. Now, because I had no belief in God, I, I really lacked a moral framework for my life. Now, I'm not saying all atheists think this way. I'm just telling you the way I looked at things. I tend to be logical. I tend to be rational. And so I, I kind of thought, okay, if there is no God, if there is no heaven, if there is no hell, if there is no judgment, if there is no ultimate accountability, then the most logical way for me to live my life would be as a hedonist. In other words, someone who just pursued pleasure. And that's what I did. And so I lived a very immoral and drunken and profane and narcissistic, self-absorbed, really in some ways self-destructive kind of a life. That was my life. What people would see was me winning awards for investigative reporting. What they didn't see was the other side which was me literally drunk in the snow in an alley on Saturday night. I had so much rage inside me, so much anger. And if you asked me back then, you know, what's the deal? Why the anger? I couldn't have told you, but looking back, I know what it was. I was always after the perfect high. You know, I, I was always after that ultimate experience of pleasure. But guess what? Everything let me down. Nothing lived up to the hype. It's a lot of anger. I remember uh, my, my wife and I got in an argument one day and our little daughter was there and I had so much rage, I just blew up. And I remember I reared back and I kicked a hole right through our living room wall. And my wife's crying and our daughter's crying. It was like, hey, that's, that's just another day in the Strobel house. And so if you've seen the movie about our life, 
you know it was because of a woman who was a Christian and a nurse uh, who my wife met and became best friends with who invited her to church and they would have long spiritual conversations. And my wife kind of went on this journey with her to investigate Christianity. And after many months, my wife came up to me one day and she gave me the worst news an atheist could get. She said, I've decided to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And I thought, oh no, this is not gonna end well. I mean, first words that went through my mind was divorce. I was gonna walk out. But I decided to stick around. And, and, and what I noticed over the following months was a couple things. There were, there were positive changes in her character and in her values and the way she related to me and the kids. And that was winsome and that was attractive and that kind of pulled me toward faith. But at the same time, I wanted the old Leslie back. I wanted our old life back. Um, I wanted to rescue her from this cult that she'd gotten involved in. And so I thought, well, you know, what if I were able to disprove Christianity? How hard could that be? I mean, um, you know, I, I was a journalist. I seen plenty of dead bodies. I knew that um, I'd never seen anybody come back to life after three days being dead. So how hard could it be to disprove Christianity? Because even I, as a skeptic, recognized everything depends on the resurrection of Jesus. That's the ballgame. Why? Because Jesus, in a variety of different ways, uh, directly and indirectly, from the first gospel written to the last gospel written, made transcendent and messianic and divine claims about himself. He claimed to be the Son of God. Uh, at one point, he got up before a group and he said, I and the Father are one. And the Greek word he used, uh, uh, the Greek word that's used there for, for one is not masculine, it's neuter which means Jesus was not saying I and the Father are the same person. He was saying I and the Father are the same thing. We're one in nature. We're one in essence. And how did the audience understand what he was saying? Well, they picked up stones to kill him because they said, you, you're just a man and you're claiming to be God. So Jesus claimed to be God, but so what? I could claim to be God. Tim Lundy could claim to be God. Murph could, well, maybe not Murph, but anybody could claim to be God. But if Jesus claimed to be God, died, and then three days later rose from the dead, that's pretty good evidence he's telling the truth. It's why the resurrection is the linchpin of the Christian faith. It's why the Apostle Paul says um, that, that if Jesus has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. This is the ballgame. So here's what I want to do. For the next couple of minutes, I just want to hit some of the highlights of the evidence I encountered in my investigation concerning the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, and by the way, I've this is now a lifelong study, so I've continued to investigate this through the years. Um, but I want to emphasize that when I did the investigation originally, I did not give the Bible any special consideration. I didn't consider it to be inerrant, inspired, the, son of, uh, the word of God. I, I was a skeptic. Uh, I believe those things now, but, but I didn't back then. But I had to accept the New Testament for what it undeniably is, which is a set of ancient historical writings. And I knew, just as you can investigate any ancient writing, whether it's by Suetonius or, or, or uh, any ancient writer, um, uh, Josephus, uh, you can take those same investigative techniques and apply them to the pages of the New Testament to try to determine, is it telling me the truth. So in other words, I didn't just open the Bible. Oh, it says Jesus is resurrected. End of story. I wanted to dig beneath that. How do I know it really happened? So I want to summarize the evidence using four words that begin with the letter E. That way, you know, Easter starts with E. These four words start with E. It's a good way to remember the evidence. The first E stands for the word execution. You have to have a death first, right, before you can have a resurrection. And what I learned is that Jesus' death on the cross is not in dispute among scholars in the field. And I'm just talking about, I'm not just talking about Christian scholars. I'm talking about the wide range of scholarship. There is virtually no dissent from the conclusion that Jesus was dead after being crucified. Why? Because when you look at the facts that we know about the ancient world, Often there's just one or, or two sources for that information. And yet for the death of Jesus, we not only have 
early first century multiple accounts in the documents of the New Testament. We've also got five ancient sources outside the Bible confirming and corroborating his death. I mean, uh, it is so well established that even the scientific, peer-reviewed, secular medical journal, the Journal of the American Medical Association, carried an investigation into the death of Jesus, and this was their conclusion, quote, Clearly, based on the historical and medical evidence, Jesus was dead even before the wound to his side was inflicted. I mean, this is so well established of an historical fact. You could go to an atheist New Testament scholar like Gerd Ludeman, formerly of Vanderbilt University. He'll tell you this. Jesus' death as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. Indisputable. That's the atheist speaking. I mean, there are very few facts of ancient history that a skeptical, critical, um, uh, atheist scholar like a Gerd Ludeman will say is indisputable. One of those facts is the death of Jesus. The first E is for execution. Jesus was dead. The second E, I think, is the most fascinating. It stands for the word early. We have early reports or early accounts that Jesus rose from the dead. In other words, reports that go virtually back to the scene itself. Why is that important? Because like a lot of skeptics, I used to think that the resurrection was a legend. And I knew it took time for legend to develop in the ancient world. So I figured 100, 150 years, 200 years after the life of Jesus, legends developed. Mythologies were spun. Stories were invented. And that's where this idea of the resurrection came from. But what I learned, I think, decimates the claim that the resurrection is merely a legend. Follow me on this. I think this is fascinating. We have preserved for us a creed of the earliest Christians. In other words, this creedal statement that the first Christians right there in the first century would rally around based on facts that they knew to be true. Now, this, this report uh, of the resurrection of Jesus embedded in this creed um, contains the essence of Christianity. It says, Jesus died, why? For our sins, he was buried, and the third day he rose from the dead, and then it mentions the specific names of eyewitnesses and groups of eyewitnesses to whom he appeared. Now, what's important about this eyewitness-based creed is how immediately it developed after the death of Jesus. See, we can date this creed. How? Because the Apostle Paul preserved it for us. He wrote a letter about 22 years after the death of Jesus to the church in Corinth. We call it 1 Corinthians. And if you want to look up the creed later, it's in 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 3. So, uh, 22 years or so after the death of Jesus, Paul takes this eyewitness-based creed and he delivers it to the church in Corinth. But in the context of writing that letter, he indicates he had already given this to them on an earlier visit. He's kind of reminding them in this letter. So that means we can safely date this creed within 20 years of the life of Jesus. Now, we could stop there, and that would be really impressive when you consider the first two biographies of Alexander the Great by Arian and Plutarch, written 400 years before his, uh, after his life, uh, and they're still considered to be pretty reliable. But here we have within 20 years, so that's really good. But we can go back earlier. How? Because we know that Paul used to be Saul of Tarsus, a persecutor of Christians. One to three years after the death of Jesus, he's on the road to Damascus. He has this encounter with the risen Christ. He becomes the Apostle Paul. Immediately, he goes into Damascus. And what does he do? He meets with some apostles. Now, many scholars believe this is when he was given this eyewitness-based creed that he later writes in the letter. But other scholars, a little more skeptical, they say, no, what? It may have been uh, three years later. Three years later, Paul goes to Jerusalem and he meets for 15 days with two eyewitnesses who are specifically named in the creed, Peter and James. Um, and, and he meets for two weeks. And the Greek word that Paul uses to describe this meeting suggests was, this was an investigative meeting. They're checking each other out. What do you know? What do you, what, what do you experience? They're checking each other out. 
Many scholars say this is when he was probably given the creed by two eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus who are named in the creed, Peter and James. Now, either way, this means that this creed can be dated back to within one to six years after the death of Jesus, and therefore the beliefs that make up that creed go back even earlier virtually to the cross itself. So the point is there's no huge time gap between the death of Jesus and the conviction that he rose from the dead and thus proved he's the son of God. In fact, one of the greatest scholars in this area is Dr. James D.G. Dunn, and this is his evaluation after years of analysis. This is what he said, quote, he said, this tradition, by that he means this creed, we can be entirely confident was formulated as tradition, as a creed, within months of the death of Jesus. Within months. Friends, this is a newsflash from ancient history, especially when you consider that one of the greatest historians who ever lived, A.N. Sherwin White of Oxford, he studied the rate at which legend developed in the ancient world. And he said the passage of two generations of time is not even enough for legend to grow up and wipe out a solid core of historical truth. We don't have two generations of time passing here. We got a news flash that, that goes right back to the beginning. And that's not the only early report we've got. We've got others in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the book of Acts, all of which date back so early they were circulating during the lifetimes of Jesus' contemporaries who would have been all too happy to point out the errors if they were making this stuff up. Friends, we got an execution. Jesus was dead. We have a report, uh, reports of the resurrection that date back so early, I don't think you can just write them off as being a legend. But that's not all we've got. We've got a third word that begins with the letter E. It's a word empty. We have an empty tomb. The historical data tells us that Jesus' body was placed in a tomb belonging to Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Jewish council. It's sealed. Um, we're told that even uh, there were guards guarding the tomb, and yet it was discovered empty that first Easter morning. Now, we could talk for a long time on all of the lines of evidence that converge to establish that the tomb was empty, but I'm just going to give you one fact, because to me this is conclusive, and that's this. Even the enemies of Jesus admitted that the tomb is empty. How do we know? Because we know from sources inside and outside the New Testament that when the disciples began to proclaim that Jesus had risen from the dead, what the opponents of Jesus never said was, baloney, go open the tomb, you'll find the body. That's not what they said. We know from sources inside and outside the New Testament that when the disciples said, Jesus is risen, what the opponents said was, oh, well, um, the disciples stole the body. Now think about that. What is that? It's a cover story. They're implicitly admitting the tomb is empty. They're just trying to explain how it got empty. Right? Think about that. Think about that. They're, in, they're, they're conceding the tomb was... It's, it's like... i try to get you an analogy. Uh, it's like if you're a teacher and, and, and a student comes up to you and says, the dog ate my homework. That student's admitting, look, I don't have my homework, but I can explain what happened to it. The dog ate it. It's the same thing. So... Everybody in the first century, the followers of Jesus and the enemies of Jesus, imp implicitly or explicitly are conceding the tomb of Jesus was empty. That's not the question, question of history. The question of history really is, how did it get empty? And you go through the usual list of suspects. The Romans weren't about to steal the body. They wanted Jesus dead. The Jewish leaders of the day weren't about to steal the body. They wanted Jesus to stay dead. The disciples weren't about to steal the body. They didn't have the motive, they didn't have the means, and they didn't have the opportunity. Friends, I think the best explanation for the tomb being empty is that Jesus physically returned from the dead, especially when we combine it with the fourth word that begins with the letter E, which is the word eyewitnesses. Not only was Jesus' tomb discovered empty, 
but over a period of time, Jesus appears alive in a dozen different instances to more than 515 people, to skeptics and doubters, as well as to believers, to men, to women, indoors, outdoors, daytime, nighttime, to groups, to individuals. I mean, think of this. Um, remember we said earlier, when we're looking at facts of ancient history, we're lucky if we have one or maybe two sources to confirm a fact. Well, get this. For the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the resurrected Jesus, we have no fewer than nine ancient sources, inside and outside the New Testament, confirming and corroborating the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the risen Christ. Friends, that is an avalanche of historical data. And it transformed the disciples. I mean, uh, before Jesus is risen, they're afraid they're going to get crucified. They're hiding. They're afraid. They're uh, cowardly. And yet, history clearly shows us that just a few weeks after Jesus had been put to death, all of a sudden, these disciples are boldly proclaiming that Jesus didn't just claim to be the Son of God. He backed up that claim by returning from the dead. And get this, we have seven ancient sources, six of them outside the New Testament, that tell us that the disciples lived lives of deprivation and suffering as a result of their proclamation that Jesus had risen. Um, in fact, you know, many of them suffered uh, deaths of martyrs as a result of their proclamation. It gets a little murky in history, what happened to a few of the disciples, but, um, you know, many of them, were willing, let me put it this way, uh, even though we may not know what actually happened to a few of the disciples in terms of their ultimate deaths, their willingness to die is, I think, indisputable. As I said, we have seven ancient sources, six of them outside the Bible, that tell us that they live lives of deprivation and suffering as a result of their proclamation that Jesus had risen. Why were they willing to do that? Because they saw on the internet that Jesus had risen? No. Because the Sunday school teacher told them? No. Because they were there. They touched him. They talked with him. They ate with him. Of all human beings who've ever lived in history, they were in a unique position to know for a fact, is this true or is it a lie? And knowing it was true, they were willing to suffer and even to die for their proclamation that he had risen. That tells me something about the veracity of their claims. Well, I ended up spending about a year and nine months investigating the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And it all came down to a Sunday afternoon. And I, 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 I thought, you know, a good juror reaches a verdict. The evidence was in after two years. It was time to reach a verdict. So I kind of gathered all the, all the stuff I'd, you know, investigated for that two years. All, you know, books and documents and records and all this stuff. And I kind of reviewed it one last time. And then I, I stepped back and I said, wait a minute. In light of this avalanche of evidence that points so powerfully toward the truth of Christianity, I realized it would take more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. In other words, the scales of evidence just went like that. And that's when I reached my verdict, that based on the data of history, I was convinced that Jesus didn't just claim to be the Son of God. He backed up that claim by returning from the dead. But then I didn't quite know what to do until I, I looked at a verse that my wife Leslie pointed out to me. Um, John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And that verse forms an equation of what it means to become a child of God. Believe plus receive equals become. So I said, okay, I get it now. I believe based on the data 
that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. He backed up that claim by returning from the dead. I believe the historical evidence, but that is not enough. I had to receive. Receive what? Receive this free gift of God's grace, this free gift of forgiveness and eternal life. And when I would receive this free gift in a prayer of repentance and faith, then I would become a child of God. So I got on my knees and I poured out a confession of a lifetime of immorality that would absolutely curl your hair. And then I, at that moment, received this complete and total forgiveness through Jesus Christ, this free gift of his grace, and I became a child of God. And I remember Leslie breaking down in tears when I told her, and she threw her arms around my neck, and she said, I almost gave up on you a thousand times. And she said, when I was a new Christian, I told some women at church about you, and I said, I don't have any hope for my husband. He's this hard-headed, hard-hearted legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. He's never going to bend his knee to Jesus. And this one woman named Sylvia put her arm around Leslie's shoulder, kind of pulled her to the side and said, Oh, Leslie, no one is beyond hope. And she gave her a verse from the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, 26. It says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And what I never knew at the time is my wife, the whole two years that I'm on the spiritual investigation, my wife, every day, on her knees, by herself, was praying that verse for me. And can I tell you what happened? Starting on that Sunday afternoon, now I had received this free gift of God's grace, and I was, I was quickly baptized. Um, and then over time, um, as I became part of a vibrant church, as I, as I learned to read the Bible with fresh eyes, as I learned to worship, as I learned to pray, God began to answer her prayers because my values changed and my character changed and my morality changed and my worldview and my attitudes and my philosophy and my, um, my parenting and my priorities. I mean, my marriage, all these things over time, began to change for the good. So much so that my little daughter, Allison, remember I told you about her? Think about this for a minute. She was five years old when I came to faith. All she had known the first five years of her life was a dad who was absent, angry, kicking holes in walls, coming home drunk. It's all she knew. But starting on that Sunday afternoon, you know what she did? She started to watch. Something's changing with my dad. Something's different with my dad. Something's new with my dad. Never interviewed a scholar, never studied ancient history. She's just five years old, but she could watch, she could listen, she could observe, and that's what she did. And it took about four or five months. And then finally, one Sunday morning, she came up first to her Sunday school teacher and then up to Leslie. You know what she said? She said, I want God to do for me what he's done for daddy. And at age five, she received this free gift of God's grace. She became a child of God. And now today she's married to a seminary graduate. She's a novelist. She's written half a dozen books of fiction that have been published, but they all have the message of Jesus woven into them. Her and her husband together write children's books about God. She is the mother of two of my four precious grandchildren. And today we're the best of friends. And same thing with my son. My son at a young age saw the difference God was making in his mom and his dad and his sister. And he came to faith at a, at a young age as well, but he, he ended up taking a different route. Uh, he, he took an academic route. He got an undergraduate degree in biblical studies and he got a master's degree in philosophy of religion and then he got another master's degree in New Testament. And after many years of study and research at Yale University and at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, he was awarded his PhD 
in theology. And you know what he does today? He's a professor of theology at one of the largest Christian seminaries in America, teaching future pastors about Jesus Christ. And seven years ago, his wife gave birth to our first grandson. And my son named him after me. God rescued our family, friends. He changed my son. He changed my daughter. He changed my wife. He changed me. And so that's my story. So what do you do with that? What do you do with it? Let me just go back to that equation. Believe plus receive equals become. And just say, you know, some of you, maybe someone encouraged you to watch this today, but you're really a skeptic like I was. You're maybe an atheist, an agnostic, maybe just kind of in spiritual neutral. And what I want to say to you is, um, this is worth your time to check out. You know, Venture's a great church where you can ask questions, where you can investigate, where you can learn over time. And I'd encourage you to make, you know, Venture Christian Church part of your life going forward. Um, make it a front burner issue in your life. Decide up front when the evidence is in, you're going to reach a verdict. And, and be encouraged by what the Bible says in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you sincerely seek God, guess what? You're going to find him. But let me end with this. Some of you may believe, but you're not sure if you've ever received. You know, maybe for the first time you believe today, you've heard the evidence for the resurrection, something inside of you says, I know this is true, this makes sense, the evidence is there. Maybe you believe for 20 years, but your life hasn't changed. Your kids have not seen a difference in you. Could it be because you believe the right stuff, but there's never really been a point in time we have received this free gift of God's grace? I'm just asking. Friends, whether you've believed for 20 seconds or for 20 years, and you're not sure if you believe, I just want to give you an opportunity uh, uh, received. Let, let me give you an opportunity to take that step, to not just believe, but to receive. You know, the Bible says, these things are written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. God doesn't want you in a state of confusion about where you stand with him. Uh, he, he, the Bible says you can know for a fact that you have been adopted as a son or a daughter of the Most High. And then when you close your eyes for the last time in this world, you will open them in the next world in the presence of God forever. So if you believe as best you can, we all have questions, but you know what? You don't have to know everything to know something. You know what you can know with confidence? That Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, and he backed it up by returning from the dead. It's all you need for now. So if you believe as best you can and you want to receive, let me just lead you in a prayer to do that. And you can just say this prayer in your heart. God knows your heart. You can say it out loud. I'm not even going to ask you to close your eyes. Just look at me. Just look at me. And if you want to take that step, then in your heart or out loud, just say, Lord Jesus, as best I can, I do believe that you were the Son of God. I believe you proved it by returning from the dead. And right now, I confess the obvious, which is that I am a sinner. I mean, I've done things, I knew they were wrong before I did them, and I did them anyway. I've sinned. And I want to confess that, and I want to turn from that. And in an attitude of repentance and faith, I want to receive your free gift of forgiveness and eternal life. Thank you, Jesus, for enduring the torture of the cross so that we could be reconciled forever. Help me. Help me 
to live the kind of life that you want me to live. Because from this moment on, I am yours. And now, Father, we know from Luke 15 that a party breaks out in heaven whenever a sinner repents, receives forgiveness through your son. So we celebrate with those who have taken that step today. We pray that uh, they would continue to grow in their faith and their devotion to you. And we pray for those that aren't quite ready yet. We pray for those that are still on this journey. I pray that you would use Venture Online, that you would use Venture Christian Church, that uh, you would use books, whatever, to help get resolution for them of the remaining questions that they have so that someday we can celebrate their rebirth as well. And thank you, Father, for what you have done, are doing, and will do through Venture Christian Church. Thank you for Tim and Murph and all the people who are part of the church. We pray for a blessing on them as they are like a city on a hill that shines your message of hope and grace and love and eternal life far and wide. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith. To keep up with the latest messages and what's happening, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc.